Did you know that 85% of the remaining oil reserves are owned by state-owned companies? The remaining 15% is split amongst over 300 global companies, including the oil and gas majors, such as ExxonMobil, BP, and Shell. This is the Levers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is Sabrina Watkins. She spent over 37 years at ConocoPhillips and a decade as the corporate head of sustainability. To us in the public, perhaps that sounds odd, but to her, it was a fascinating and rewarding career. So now let's listen and see how she was able to find commonality even with people who wish to divest from her sector. Well, Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. It's great to be with you, Jimmy. Thank you for Absolutely. having me. We have known each other for a couple of years, and you were head of sustainability, corporate sustainability at ConocoPhillips for many years, over a 37-year career. And I think the perception that people have of sustainability and oil and gas company is that they just simply don't mix, kind of like oil and water. So how does the concept of sustainability sit within one of these oil and gas majors? Companies like ConocoPhillips feel strongly that they should be as sustainable as they can possibly be from the standpoint of social performance, environmental performance, and of course, economic performance. And so there's still tremendous value in reducing footprint and optimizing relationships with communities. And when we think about scale, it's quite important for companies in the oil and gas space to reduce their emissions because they've achieved emission reductions on the order of a million or more metric tons per year. It is a, a valuable component of their total sustainability to reduce their physical emissions but companies that are thinking in a forward-thinking way, of course, think about it in a number of different ways beyond that. You know, since you've retired, I don't know how much you follow the news of oil and gas, but when you look at what BP is announcing, what Shell is announcing, how does that correlate to what you try to do within ConocoPhillips during your career? It's, I think a net zero emission goal is a natural progression. So you see a maturing of the concepts of emission reduction, starting often companies will start with their own physical footprint, then they'll think about their scope three emissions, the use of the products and how they might impact and make more efficient the use of their products. And then they start thinking about what can they do to achieve a loftier goal. And in some cases, that's an emissions intensity goal so that every barrel has fewer emissions associated with it than it did in the past. And in some cases, like in the case you mentioned of BP and Shell, that gets to a net zero goal where they are looking toward a future time when they can have a net of zero emissions, which means they've either completely eliminated their own emissions or they've created an offset um, program to address the, their remaining emissions. And probably for people in the public, when they hear these types of goals that BP and Shell and other companies are pronouncing, they might have a sense of skepticism of, yeah, really, are they going to do that or not? But from your perspective and your experience, when one of these large companies make a public pronouncement like that, how serious are they in terms of you know, achieving it and reaching it? 
in, in my experience, they have to be quite serious because the public will absolutely hold them accountable. Their stakeholders, starting from the board, their employees, the communities in which they operate, many of their stakeholder groups will absolutely hold them accountable to making progress on that. A goal like net zero is not something you achieve in one year. It's something that will take several years to achieve, but they have to be quite serious and they have to have a sense of how they can get there to make that goal. It would be very unusual for a company to make a goal, a forward-looking goal, without understanding how they could get there. So probably many years of work has already gone into developing the plans and the strategies before the public announcements even came came to be. Yeah, both of those companies have had decades, more than a decade of experience in thinking about their, their carbon footprint. For example, in the case of ConocoPhillips, we made a, a broader, more impactful goal around alignment with human rights positions at a global scale. And before we did that, we made sure that every one of our operations was performing consistent with those expectations. So companies can't afford to take this lightly because they will certainly get called on it if they do. Let's look at a little bit of what the organization is. You know, me as a member of the general public, my interaction with an oil and gas company is go to the gas station and fill up a tank of gas. So what happens behind the scenes that gets me that tank of gas to the petrol station? Things really start at the exploration and production phase. So a company will go in and shoot seismic or otherwise determine what they think is below the surface. They'll look for a deposit of oil and gas below the surface. And one of the common misconceptions is it's like a big lake under the ground. And it's actually oil and gas is contained within the pore space of permeable and porous rock. And so the first step is you do some work to try to understand where it might be. And then you drill to explore and verify whether oil and gas is present in the location that you're drilling in. And then you go in and do the work to create a pattern of wells that can produce that deposit, presuming that you find a deposit of oil or gas. You drill other oil and gas wells in order to be able to produce that deposit. And then the production goes often through a pipeline, sometimes by rail, sometimes by truck, but most often through a pipeline to the refinery. It's refined into products like gasoline that you would using your vehicle, and then makes its way via pipeline or truck to a gas station. And so then when people talk about upstream, midstream, and downstream, what are the general categories of activities that happens along what you just described that's considered upstream, midstream, and downstream? Upstream is the exploration and production phase of the operation. Midstream typically refers to pipeline companies and downstream typically refers to refining and marketing. And so then a fully integrated company would be a oil and gas that does all three from the exploration to the delivery to the end use customer. Yes. And in some cases, an integrated company also includes electric generation. Do you feel that some of them have an advantage in the transition to a clean economy? Does the integratedness give an advantage? Wow, that's a great, that is a, an ongoing debate in the industry, of course, as companies combine and, and split and so forth. When we think about the energy transition, I think different companies will have very different strategies because they occupy different parts of the energy ecosystem. So an integrated company might move more and more over time into 
electricity generation that's less fossil fuel oriented, for example, or electricity generation that relies on natural gas and, and renewables in their portfolio. A company that is more purely in the upstream space might shift very differently. And some of the kinds of technology work that we looked at as a company over time included things like um, CO2 capture and sequestration because there's a situation where the underground capabilities, the geologic capabilities, the storage of things beneath the Earth's surface are in the wheelhouse of companies that are in exploration and production. So you could imagine, and Oxy has been very vocal about moving purposefully into that space. So different companies, I think, will probably pursue very different strategies as it relates to the energy transition. That's true, because every company is going to have a different set of skills. One that's really good at drilling wells is going to be different than one that's really good at distributing through pipes. And based on those skill sets, they're going to transition in different ways. And ConocoPhillips was which one of those three over the course of your career? So when I started at, in the sustainability role at ConocoPhillips, I'll, I'll skip the first 20, 21 years because there were several mergers and, and so forth during that time. But while I was in the sustainability role, we started as an integrated company with both upstream and downstream operations. Uh, we had 10 refineries in the U.S. and several overseas and producing in 17 plus countries. And then during the time that I was head of sustainability, we split the company into an upstream company separate from a downstream and marketing company. And I remained with the exploration and production company, which retained the name ConocoPhillips. And so then internally within ConocoPhillips, where does sustainability reside from a a corporate point of view? And why did it make sense to put it there? In ConocoPhillips, the sustainability group resides in corporate strategy, which is both an academic best practice and very well suited for our business because we did operate in 17 different countries. We have a variety of issues operationally and from a technology perspective. And being in corporate strategy supports the fact that sustainability needs to include both long-term thinking as well as near-term portfolio focus. And when you say near term, like are, are we talking, you know, years, months hmm. versus long term, which see, sounds like, you know, decades. And and it is. A near term would be I would say 0 to 3 years and longer term in the 3 3 to 20. A lot of corporate strategy is just a 3-year strategy in terms of the details and tactical components. But when we think about longer-term scenario planning, like carbon scenarios, those are often 15, 20, 25 years. And so then when you were running sustainability, what were some of the key risks and key initiatives that you were working on? In sustainability, we looked at some of the biggest, most important components of the work, included biodiversity, climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, and then water and social issues, including human rights and community engagement. So we had these four large strategic components that carried across the business. With those responsibilities that you had, what did you find was the easiest to get accomplished? And what were some of the initiatives that got the most pushback? The easiest things to accomplish are things that are already operationally important. And in many cases, there was a a piece of a goal that we were setting out 
to achieve that was easy to accomplish because it was well aligned with the operations and financial part of the business. In some cases, though, it was harder for people to understand how those things were aligned. For example, some economic benefits of sustainability show up longer term, and some of the risks show up longer term. Um, You might have a mediocre relationship with a community for a year or two, and it might not impact the business very much. But if that relationship deteriorates over time, then there is a significant business impact. So we had to help other parts of the organization to think both near and longer term as it related to value and risk. You know, that brings up an interesting point, because a lot of the conversation, I think, around how sustainability is good for business and sustainability is good for profit talks about how sustainability is aligned with these corporate interests. And in your role inside the company, did you ever find cases where sustainability wasn't also, they were slightly misaligned, that you had to do a little bit more of a push? Yeah, I think goal alignment is one of the biggest challenges for any matrixed organization. So, and when I say matrixed, it's because sustainability was seen as a function that cut across all of the operational segments, all of the technology segments, and so forth. Whereas a a line management function is a profit and loss component that, in our case, was regional. So there was an Americas group, there was a Southeast Asia group, etc. So trying to create alignment in that kind of matrix organization is an important thing to achieve in order to move the ball forward. When you were looking for this alignment, did you find different departments or functions that were more ahead and wanted to engage with engage with you, or a little bit more behind in resistance and didn't think that they had to worry about it? Certainly, and you can think of that. You you can see that globally and culturally in business as well as in society. So we often will think of. Scandinavia as being very forward thinking in sustainability. Well, they've had greenhouse gas pricing, they've had carbon pricing in place for for many, many years. In the US, we don't. So we're not used to thinking of greenhouse gas emissions in the same kind of costly way that happens in Norway today. And so you can imagine different countries have different philosophies or different thought processes around sustainability. And certainly an easy one is there are some regions where water scarcity is a big issue and other regions which are plentiful, which have plentiful water resources. So how we go about use of resources, where we set certain types of goals, we had to think about that from a regional perspective, from the type of operation we were engaged with, from the proximity and engagement that we had with communities. There are a number of different ways we have to think through each, you said initiative, I will say each goal around sustainability or each action plan. We were organized into topics and action plans in order to keep things in action. It brings up an interesting point of how environmentalism or sustainability is interpreted differently across global communities and how these different resources, how did you manage corporate interests, corporate goals versus a local need? And how did you bring those two together? I think one of the most important things that we did was to recognize exactly that, Jimmy. I think that from the standpoint of wearing a corporate hat, an investor hat, things look differently than they do at a local level. And it's very important to recognize that and to accommodate the needs of both. 
So when we did our action plans and goal setting, we did both a top-down and a bottoms-up approach. And then we married the two in a set of goals and actions that made sense both globally and locally. Given that oil and gas affects communities both from the exploration side as well as then from the end use side on communities, how would you balance out those two goals? Would those two goals be aligned at times or would you find those goals to be divergent and separate? From that standpoint, the goals are pretty well aligned because the interest of the company is to be successful over the long term, to be successful both near and long term. And that means both near and long term relationships, as well as both near and long term progress on physical goals like greenhouse gas emission reduction and water use. And so when we start thinking of the larger ecosystem, there's this large number of stakeholders in the game. And even ConocoPhillips being large, it's still a fairly small player when you add together the global ecosystem. So when you were sustainability manager, head of corporate sustainability, what were some of the things that you were able to do, but that you also had to have collaboration with your peers? Or which ones were the things that you could just get done on your own? I mean, certainly the, the most profound example is policy making. So how a company in the oil and gas space and really in any industry wants to influence policy. And a great example is on carbon pricing in the U.S. So different companies in the industry think differently about what that kind of policy should look like. And there has been for certainly well over a decade, a concerted effort around trying to align the industry about that. But because companies have very different operating regional footprints, it makes it very difficult to align their interests and their desires for certain types of policy in different parts of the world. So there have been successes with companies engaging together on national level policies, but it's it's difficult to achieve that kind of consensus. Going back to having that high-level goal, unifying goal versus really localized solutions, would it be correct to generalize that policy needs to be high-level top-down, but then individual solutions might have to be individualized and custom? Yes, and policy still has to be influenced by the regional level and the, the issues that different regions and different types of the operation have. So how a refinery can reduce its emissions is mechanically different than how an upstream operation reduces its emissions. So if you have refineries in the UK, the US, Southeast Asia, and Scandinavia, they might each have different challenges related to reducing their emissions. So you still have to incorporate that local and regional thinking into the policy making to craft a policy that's workable across the diversity of operations. And at the end of the day, there's what, 180 some odd countries, each going to be setting their own carbon pricing and tax codes. Given that this is a unifying global issue, do you think it's possible to come up with generally unifying policy goals across so many different countries? I do think so. It was interesting working on climate change policy. One of the things that was, I think, encouraging was that a few companies within the industry, as well as some nonprofit organizations and policymakers, could come up with a list of principles that made sense regardless. The reductions should 
engage all sectors of the economy. Reductions should be technology neutral and allow for absolute emission reduction to be the measurable component of the of the resulting policy. So there were a handful of principles that we could reach agreement on. The challenge became the details of the hundreds of pages worth of draft legislation because then the tiny differences do make a difference and they make a difference significantly for different types of companies in different industry sectors. But even if you look at the U.S. in 2009-2010, when Waxman-Markey proposed legislation in the U.S., there was some real pushback around that legislation. And the progression of that work into the Kerry Lieberman bill solved quite a few of those problems, but by then the political momentum had changed. So sometimes the mechanics of a bill can be workable, but the political momentum isn't there. And other times the political momentum is there, but a piece of legislation runs into a brick wall because of certain details in the legislation. And this is something that just frustrates oil and gas stakeholders tremendously because companies might be proponents of moving forward with appropriate legislation, but there might be a detail in a particular bill that they just can't, they can't support. So then that appears to be a conflict, that it, it appears that they're being duplicitous even, that they really think one way and they're saying something else. And often it's more a case of just a couple of details that just aren't tenable from the company's perspective. When we're talking about stakeholder engagements of bringing people together, there's globally a movement to divest from oil and gas companies, especially the public majors. First of all, before we get into that conversation, can you give us a brief overview of what the market share looks like of the publics, the privates, the state-owned, so that we first get a, a sense of what slice of the pie we're talking about? Yeah, that's a, it's a really important point because most people don't realize that state-owned oil companies own about 85% or more of the remaining reserves in oil and gas. All of the publicly traded companies, and there are over 300 in the U.S., share in that somewhere between 7 and 15% remaining reserve piece. And that then is shared among very, very large companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron, and then a very large number of much smaller regional players. So there are very large companies, mid-sized companies, and smaller companies in the publicly traded space, and then there are a very, very large component of remaining reserves are owned by state-owned companies. And what that means from a total fossil fuel footprint perspective is that only about 6% of future emissions will could be eliminated by the total elimination of publicly traded companies. So divestment from the standpoint of an industry professional like myself isn't the best way to create change in terms of actual emission reduction. There are a couple of videos of you giving talks, divestment talks, and I think you've done a number of them. What have you found to be the commonality when you are brought in to speak to an organization that's looking at divesting? That's been a, a really important and worthwhile set of discussions for myself personally, and, and it was also for the company. 
different organizations are pursuing divestment for different reasons or considering divestment for different reasons. In some cases, it's because they want their money to be invested in certain types of assets that they feel best about. And that is something that is obviously an individual or an organizational choice that is important for organizations to make and to think through quite thoughtfully. In some cases, they're considering divestment to make a statement about what they think the world should look like in the future. And in that case, there are a number of ways to influence companies that don't necessarily require divestment. And so one of the more interesting types of conversations that I had as head of the sustainability for the company were with socially responsible investors who wanted companies to take climate change more seriously. They wanted companies to have bigger, more aggressive goals in greenhouse gas emission reduction. They wanted companies to engage more constructively with their stakeholders and investors who who felt that way. In that scenario, then, the organizations, the investment organizations needed to think about what was their best chance of achieving what they wanted to achieve. And in some cases, quite a few cases, actually, they felt that engagement with the companies actually moved the ball further than divestment. And certainly the company was pleased to hear that from some of our investors. And we made real commitments around the frequency of engagement, around our goals around greenhouse gas emission reduction, and and gave line of sight to the investors into more of the challenges that we faced as we tried to determine goals that were achievable and made sense for the company. What do you think was the most difficult conversation you've ever had to have talking about some of these subjects and topics? I think some of these investor conversations are challenging. They reflect the experiences of the stakeholders that are in the room. For example, we had ongoing conversations with stakeholders about our operations in Peru. And there were people in the room who had had tremendous experience in Peru people who had had terribly, terribly negative experiences with oil and gas companies in the, in the decades that companies had been trying to explore in the region. And so we first had to understand what were the list of things that concerned them the most and how could we describe operationally how we were doing a better job of it than what they had experienced when they were there. So we had to find ways to have that conversation that shared our perspective and shared our operational approach, but also really listened deeply to the kinds of things that they had experienced and what they were concerned about. And it helped us become better operators. Those conversations helped us become better. You know, so how much do you think there's a disconnect between strategic goal and operational reality? It's in some ways easy just to say, hey, 10% reduction in carbon, but then to squeeze it out of a facility or a, a physical tangible asset. Did you find your experience those two were well connected or sometimes one was leading and, and the other was lagging? I think that's one of the most important jobs that leaders in the company have. And I say leaders plural, because it wasn't just me that had to work on that, right? I had to tee up the conversation 
with the leaders in the organization. But it was never okay to set a corporate goal that just frustrated the business because when that happens, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't stick. Either it doesn't happen effectively, it doesn't happen efficiently, or it doesn't happen for the long term. And that's a very ineffective way to make progress. We spent a lot of time on exactly that. And it sounded like some of your conversations with those stakeholders, some of their visions were a a vision of the future of where they wanted you to be. But in other cases, it was a misunderstanding. You guys had already progressed beyond their vision of what they thought you were. Would that be correct? Yes. Yes, both are true. Yes. And so if we think about sustainability as a big tent topic, because it covers so many different topics, ideas, visions of the future, did you ever find situations where what one stakeholder wanted from an, you know, the strategies are the same, the visions are the same, but what they wanted tactically and operationally from you was at odds with what a different group wanted from you tactically or operationally from you? Um, there's pretty good alignment among external stakeholders about the kinds of things that they wanted and their vision for the operation. There sometimes are differences between what external stakeholders wish to see and what's feasible operationally. That's probably the largest source of disconnect. And a great example of that, or or a difficult, I guess, really example of that is around methane emission reduction. So methane is natural gas that's sometimes emitted, fugitive emissions is released inadvertently during production operations. And it's mutually desirable within the company and among external stakeholders for companies to reduce those methane emissions as much as possible. But what's feasible and operationally workable is limited by technology, the current equipment that's available, and also by operational challenges. So for example, in one field area, we had 10,000 wells. And so it took several years to install more modern emission reduction equipment because it's just physically hard to drive around to 10,000 wells, the operating staff, to get in their trucks and drive around to 10,000 wells. So there were all those kinds of issues that made our progress seem slower to the external stakeholders, but seemed challengingly fast to some of the internal stakeholders. With you at your role at ConocoPhillips, where would you get your new information from? Who would you seek out to learn the best practices and um, to share and collaborate? I was fortunate, Jimmy, as you know, to, to do a master's program in sustainability from 2004 to 2007. And it really bolstered my knowledge and my confidence around what are best practices. Beyond that, there are some tremendous groups, both within the oil and gas industry and also in more broad multi-sector organizations that are able to share best practices, to learn from each other, to hear the academic work in best practices. So I I tried to stay up to date on that and happily had a staff of folks that stayed very up to date on that. Yeah. And when you looked globally at the different universities, the different think tanks, the different investors, do you think that there were some that were you know, appropriately forward-thinking. It's nice. I'm, different ones are good at different things, and, and thank goodness for that, right? MIT has been extraordinary in terms of equipment 
and methodology, CO2 capture and storage, for example. Pinchot, BGI, Presidio Graduate School have been very forward thinking on social justice, ways of thinking about the energy ecosystem, and ways of engaging leaders. Rice University in Houston has done some great things. Yale has done some amazing things. So there are a number of organizations academically that have done very forward-thinking things. And then from the standpoint of business organizations, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and their regional networks have physically moved the ball forward. As well as sharing best practices, they've actually created projects that move the ball forward. Within the oil and gas industry, one of the most important organizations is called IPICA, and they have created best practices with external stakeholder engagement on everything from forced labor issues to greenhouse gas emission reduction and policy work. So there really are an abundance of good resources for sustainability leaders to look at and to bring into their companies. When we talk about the energy ecosystem, most of today has been focused on oil and gas, but there's also electricity, there's also natural gas, not just petroleum gas. Was there competition between the energy sectors that you found? And or how did you collaborate with the other energy providers? I think the level playing field for an energy ecosystem that wants to be more sustainable. The level playing field is to look at measuring emissions and emissions reduction and to look at overall footprint. So it's hard to craft policies that don't do something easier than that. So you see things like renewable portfolio standards, which tend to favor certain technologies versus other technologies. And at the same time, the life cycle look at different technologies is a really important part of it. And I have to tell you, Jimmy, that of course your work has, I think, been super important in that area because it's important, I think, for us as consumers of energy to look at the entire footprint and the entire impact and to realize that maybe combinations of them are the best near term. I think the energy transition over time will move in a much more sustainable direction. We have to get there from where we are. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of talk within the EV space of let's get ourselves off of oil and gas and move to clean electricity. What do the oil and gas majors feel about that argument? It changes over time, and it changes over with overall supply and demand. I mean, there were certainly times when refineries in the U.S. couldn't keep up with demand. And we're very vocal about the importance of efficiency. And efficiency of gasoline demand includes a good component of electric vehicles. By the same token, looking at the electricity space, natural gas, which is produced by the same E&P oil and gas companies that gasoline is produced by, is a real game changer for emissions as it relates to electricity generation. Because provided that the methane emissions are appropriate, then it's about a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions compared to coal. So let's take a look at your role as corporate head of sustainability. What was the breadth of your influence that you could get done? Influence is the most important word you said in that sentence, because for many of us in sustainability, there's not a hierarchical control component. And so the work is really achieved by influencing 
at all levels of the company. And so we had a very structured governance system within the company to make sure that we engaged people at all levels of the company in order to create the most practical goals we could do and then to influence the company to achieve those goals. What was realistic for you to get accomplished within a year? Oil and gas being infrastructure business, things take a long time to build. And once they're built, Mm -hmm. they take a long time to come offline. What was realistic to accomplish? Quite a bit. Our greenhouse gas emissions reductions were well over a million tons a year, most of the years that, that I was in the role. Our improvement on stakeholder relations was measurable and significant from year to year. Our water reuse in water scarce regions, so water reuse for hydraulic fracturing was significant from year to year. There are some things that you have to look back over five years to feel like you got anything accomplished, but there certainly were goals that we specifically created to be measurable annually. When you're working with these people individually, whether it's on your team, across the organization, how did you bring people along with you? My assumption is not everyone was at the same place within ConocoPhillips from a sustainability point of view as you were. So how would you bring them along with you? I think that one of the things that I've learned that has been so valuable is the importance of listening and listening deeply. Because when you understand the shoes that the other person is wearing and the challenges that they have in their work, it's much easier to describe to them why a certain goal in sustainability is important to them. So I think there's a lot of work that sustainability professionals and leaders need to do that is about translation. It's about thinking about how the sustainability work connects to the business on the ground and how it can improve the world in which that business operates and improve the the frustrations, reduce the frustrations that that leader might have. From your position and vantage in the company, did you find that people more attuned to sustainability higher up in the company, lower in the company, or was it a pretty even understanding through the organization? There's this wonderful analogy in safety organizations in multiple industries, and sometimes it's called the frozen layer, and sometimes it's called the clay layer, and they both mean about the same thing. It was really interesting and very true because what happens at the top of the organization in a company like this is that they see what external stakeholders are concerned about. They see the investor questions. They understand and and live with, on a day-to-day basis, the broad reputational questions. Folks in the staff levels of the organization are excited. They're technologists. They often are very attuned to sustainability in their own lives. In our network of excellence among the staff level, we had 900 participants in the company in the sustainability network of excellence. So lots of people were interested in how to make their particular job more sustainable. And where the rubber hits the road, right in the middle, is the folks at the regional president level or the operational level where their job is largely about profit and loss. They're largely held accountable for the volume of production delivered, the cost of doing so, and the revenue that it produces. And so for them, the near-term goals tend to predominate their thinking. And that makes it harder 
for sustainability to feel like a good idea to them. That was the the most challenging layer of the company were those two or three layers in the middle where the busyness of the role is intense, the pressure around near-term results is intense, and we had to really be thoughtful about what made sense, what could they contribute, what made sense for them to deliver in sustainability. And in some ways, that touches on their incentive plan, their compensation plan. If their roles, responsibilities, and then reward at the end is strictly financial-based, at that layer, they're disincentivized to pay any attention to non-financial benefits. Well, and even when sustainability has clear financial benefits, they're sometimes longer term Hmm. or they're fuzzier. And so you can describe the importance of ongoing community support, the importance of lower greenhouse gas footprint in a future that's likely to have carbon pricing. You can think about that, but when the pressure is on for this quarter, the size of those two things is sometimes feel, feels different. Through your experience, if we talk about hierarchically, right, from the top managers to staff level, were the frequencies of their worries different? Uh, we're talking quarter to quarter, where some people worried about the day-to-day, some people about the five, 10 years. Could you, would you categorize that frequencies were different based on their hierarchical position? To some extent, yes. And the roles just required different attention. So the operational person in charge of a field of production operations, the type of phone calls they're getting all day long are things like, we had a safety meeting and this is what it covered, or somebody got hurt, or the landowner's cows got out and we have to help them make sure that, that, that the cows don't get into our operations or they have an offtake pipeline company that is suddenly curtailing production. I mean, the type of conversations that they have to have all day long are very different than what others in the organization might have. You might have a strategy group that's looking at modeling for the next 40 years of a particular project's life cycle. And their day is is occupied completely differently. So what the sustainability leader needs to do is to recognize that diversity and pull that together in a way that's meaningful for each of those organizations to contribute. So within your role then, where were some decisions that you can make really quickly? And where were some places that you really had to put the brakes and slow down? We could make lots of decisions quickly as it related to creating the sustainability report, producing educational information for employees, describing our results so that employees understood the the value and the drivers of success, working with the business units on what their goals looked like and how that contributed to the corporate whole. Those are the kind of things that were bread and butter for the organization. The things that are more challenging are things like, what is our climate change policy? And that certainly is something that you have to talk about at many layers of the company. One of the most interesting experiences I had was in 2012 when we split the company in two because there had to be two sustainability organizations, two websites, two sets of climate change policy, two sets of human rights policy that were available to the public and to the investors on the first day of the split. And so that required a tremendous amount of engagement with the new players because 50% of each executive team 
were either new in their jobs or new to the company, and 50% of each board were new in their roles because, of course, both companies retained a core component of people that had been there before for continuity, but they also filled out the rest of the executive team and board with folks that were new in their roles. So that was a great example of the extensiveness of engagement and why it matters, and yet the importance of clarity when you come out of that process. And where did you find freedom to act at your own discretion? And where were places that you had to make sure you had consensus before taking an action? There are two different types of action, I would say. There are a lot of things that are within the purview of the sustainability team around understanding best practices, around creating ways of bringing people along, ways of creating networks of excellence, creating different processes and procedures related to sustainability. But they're really, when you think about the sustainability of the company is the whole company. There's, in some sense, a lot of autonomy in a sustainability group because you have a function that you're responsible for called sustainability. And then if you look at it a different way, there's no autonomy whatsoever because in order to actually get anything done, it requires action by folks outside of the group. To actually move the company forward in sustainability requires the action of people all over the company. So for people thinking of entering the energy sector, clean tech sector, where do you think there's the biggest need for expertise? Everywhere. <laughs> That's a kind of a silly answer on the one hand, but it's actually quite true. I've had so many interesting mentoring sessions with professionals who are wanting to do more in sustainability, but they're in information technology, or they want to do more in sustainability, but they are a mechanical engineer. And honestly, all of those skill sets are needed to move the company forward in sustainability. We needed to have interest and aptitude. In some cases, it takes an, an engineer to sort out a new piece of equipment that could reduce emissions, to understand what kind of emission monitoring equipment really best suits our operations and things like that. It needs people who are good at social engagement to work with communities and really understand what their expectations are of the company and not somebody who isn't skilled at that conversation and has people just clam up and that's it, you're done. So I think that there are a lot of ways to contribute to sustainability. And if you want to be in a sustainability group, you know, small corporate group or a small regional group, then it requires both academic work in sustainability as well as depth of expertise in a particular industry, probably. Any last words of advice? Yeah, I would just say summing up that sustainability is a lot of fun and it is a place where you can make a big difference. And a lot of people want to have a career that makes a difference in the world. And in that sense, it's a very positive place to engage and to have a career and to continue a career progression in a way that feels very satisfying and is also very, very helpful to a company and I think to society as well. Well, Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. It was great to be with you, Jimmy. Thank you. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia. 
and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change.